Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. There are a lot of words that would likely come to mind if I asked you to describe the pandemic. Revenge is probably not one of them, but revenge factored in quite prominently during one of the most famous pandemics ever written about. The story begins with a beautiful woman who was stolen, taken away from the man she was married to, by someone who felt he just couldn't live without her. So the Greeks launched a thousand ships and tens of thousands of men went to Troy and were laying siege to Troy. The woman was named Helen, and she was so beautiful, that's how the ancient story goes, that this conflict arose over her. So when the Greeks attacked, they stole riches, and then in a major misstep, they stole people too. They were also sacking vassal states, nearby states of Troy. And in one of those expeditions, they sacked a nearby city. They killed all the men, or most of them. They kidnapped all the women, and they took all the treasure. And when they got back to the Greek camp, they divided it up. And one of the young maidens was given as a slave, basically, to Agamemnon, the king of the Greeks, the principal king. But, says professor and physician Nicholas Christakis, the young maiden's father was a priest, someone with an innate connection to the gods, particularly the god Apollo. And he wanted his daughter back. And he uh, comes to the Greek camp and he brings a great treasure and he falls on his knees and he begs Agamemnon to release his daughter. And Agamemnon not only refuses to release the daughter of the, of the priest, but also, you know, smacks him and, and berates him and tells him that your daughter will, you know, grow old in my house, you know, at my loom, in my bed. And the army is very worried, all the soldiers listening to this, because they think this is bad luck, you know, to, to abuse the priest. Which it was. That instinct amongst the troops to fear revenge, it was right on target. And in fact, the priest goes down to the shore and prays to Apollo. And he says, if ever I've served you over these years, hear me now, punish the Greeks. And Apollo, of course, is a god of, of both a number of things, including healing and also disease and plagues. And Apollo hears him immediately on Olympus, flies down to the Greek camp, squats among the ships and begins to release his, his arrows that are arrows of plague. Many ancient people imagine disease as being this invisible thing that suddenly brought us low, like an invisible arrow from the gods. And then the, the poem is very beautiful, actually. It, first he killed the running dogs, then the horses, then the men. Nine days through the army went the arrows of the god. And then finally, on the 10th day, Hera, the queen of the gods, took pity on the Greeks, for she saw them perishing. Christakis says... We are in a moment that has happened before, and it will happen again, even if it's not exactly the same. Anyone listening to this is probably well aware that we have come to live in this very unusual, even alien sort of way right now. But what's really important to understand is that plagues are not new to our species. They're just new to us. We think this is so crazy what's happening to us. We think that, oh my goodness, this, this, is, this is unbearable. I mean, people are dying indiscriminately. People are pulling apart. The economy is collapsing. You know, all of these bad things have happened. How is that possible? Well, the point is that plagues have been afflicting us for thousands of years. They're, they're in the Bible. They're in Shakespeare. They're in Homer. They're in Cervantes. Christakis is the author of the book Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. He directs the Human Nature Lab at Yale, and he co-directs the Yale Institute for Network Science. He argues pandemics have afflicted humans for so long you can study their trajectory. 
They have short-term effects, which we all know too well. They have intermediate-term effects, and they've got long-term effects, all of which we're going to get to. They reorder society in sometimes unexpected ways. They create pent-up demand for certain things. And though we tend to forget, plagues are part of society. Our decisions today shape how the virus travels, and in turn, the virus will reshape us as a culture. And it already has. It's been reshaping culture almost since the very beginning. I've been studying human social networks for 15 years and how things spread on networks, how ideas spread, how behavior spread, and also how germs spread and other things spread on networks. And I had this established collaboration with some Chinese scientists based in Hong Kong, looking at uh, Chinese mobile phone data, studying, for example, how do social interactions, how do they get affected by an earthquake? You know, if there's an earthquake, how does that reshape interactions? Or if you put in a new high-speed rail line, how does that change social economic interactions? And then January 2020 hit. Christakis was sitting on all this data about things spreading through China. High-speed rail lines were all well and good, but something much faster was now spreading, even though few of us in the U.S. were paying attention. And we had data on the movement of 11 million people through the city of Wuhan spreading out throughout China because in a bit of misfortune for our species, the, the coronavirus leapt to our species at the time of the annual Chanyan migration in China. A billion people relocate during this month. It's like puts the Thanksgiving migration that we have in our country to shame. And but those, this New Year, they're celebrating New they're Year's. They're celebrating New Year's, exactly. And, and all those people are moving through Wuhan and, you know, taking the virus with them. Right. So we were able to study this. And as a result of this, I had been aware of the, you know, reading news reports in early January, but, but then beginning in the middle of January, I was actually studying the topic. And as a result of this, I was immediately aware when on January the 25th, the Chinese judged that the threat posed by this virus was so severe that they basically detonated a social nuclear weapon to stop it. They put 930 million people under home confinement beginning January 25th. And this really got my attention. Like, I was like, wow, a billion people. And then I looked around me in the United States and I was like, people don't seem to be concerned or aware. Right. I was like, how can we think, you know, that the Chinese didn't do this for nothing? I mean, they obviously were very worried. And how could we not be taking it seriously? And so the virus got my full attention. And then as by the late January, early February, reports regarding certain basic epidemiological parameters of the virus had emerged. And once those parameters were known to me and other epidemiologists, it was pretty obvious that this was going to be a serious pandemic. So that's what I've been thinking and studying basically for the last year. So as you suggest, this thing went fast through networks of people. Yes. Um, there is fairly new research out from an epidemiologist, um, uh, Jeffrey Shaman at Columbia, looking at um, how long the pandemic's going to keep going, even with vaccines that are clearly being rolled out right now. But one of the things that shocked me is that he has these modeling estimates, right? And, and he estimates that something like a little more than 100 million Americans have already had coronavirus at some point in the last year or so. I think and that's I, high. I, just, I think that's high okay. judging from other estimates I've seen. But go on. OK. No, I, I, I was going to say I read that sentence probably three times because that's a third of Americans um, – you know, who have already had it potentially, who might be immune for some period of time. I was going to ask you, what do you make of that number? 
No, I think that's too high. I think that in okay. the end, I think in the end, leaving aside the new B117 and other uh, more communicable variants that have emerged in the last month. Now, is that that's the British? The British and there's the similar mutations have appeared in a in a couple of locations, but okay. leaving aside those variants which are surely more communicable, the at least 50% of Americans are likely to get this uh, this disease naturally, like absent a vaccine. In fact, I think given the pace at which we're vaccinating people, we might hit that, approximate that threshold anyway. Okay. And I think right now, probably only about 15% of Americans have probably been infected so far, 15%, not 30%, like this other estimate you mentioned. In fact, it's one of the sad commentaries on the inadequacy of our American response that we don't actually know exactly this number. Really, out of all the billions of dollars we've been spending and trillions of trillions of dollars of damage to our economy, we should have allocated some money to have good surveillance, to have random sampling of Americans to be really able to nail down this this single number that you and I are discussing. But I suspect the estimates I've seen make me think this will be closer to 15% right now. The, the point being, however, whatever the number, but let's say, let's grant it's my number, let's say it's about 15% of Americans have so far. Which would be like 50 million. Instead of 100 million, yes. you're saying like maybe like 50 million people. Yes, that's right. The point, though, is the virus has a tremendous amount of runway still. I mean, we've lost 400,000 Americans that we know of. Probably the number is higher. Probably it's closer to 500,000 already with only 15% of Americans infected. And more and more Americans are going to get infected. And so we, we have a long way to go, unfortunately. I mean, people think that because of the invention of the vaccine, which, to be honest, is miraculous. I mean, we are the first generation of humans to confront this ancient threat of a plague who has been able in real time to invent a specific countermeasure. I mean, it is astonishing what we have been capable of doing. This never happened before. But nevertheless... This germ is going to keep spreading and spreading for the foreseeable future. And I believe we will, and I said back in August, that we would lose between half a million and a million Americans. And we're well on course for that, unfortunately. So the virus has a lot of runway to go still. And keep in mind, the virus is having what is known in biology as an ecological release. It's like an invasive species, you know, like a rats you release onto an island that overrun the place. The virus... And, and we are that to the to the virus. We are untouched terrain. We have no natural immunity to speak of. It's just going to keep spreading and spreading in our bodies, doing its thing. And so we happen to be alive at a moment when we are experiencing a once-in-a-century event, which is a, this new pathogen is being introduced into our species, and it's it's going to circulate among us forever. It's never going to go away. It, all we can do is to eventually acquire it naturally or and or be vaccinated against it. How is the vaccine rollout going, in your view? The invention of the vaccine is roughly on schedule. So there were like, uh, back in August, there were about 120 or so vaccine initiatives. It's not just the science of inventing or formulating a vaccine. It's also the time required to do the randomized controlled trial with tens of thousands of people to show that it works. And we have at least four, I think, reliably demonstrated vaccines now within a year of the of the pathogen entering into our species that we know work. It's it's truly unbelievable. But even that is just the first step. We we now have to manufacture hundreds of millions of doses, which is not trivial. Even things like the glass vials and the and the, the factories needed to, to do all of this are not a trivial thing. And we have to distribute these vaccines, especially in the case of the Pfizer and the uh 
And the Moderna mRNA vaccines, these require what is known as a cold chain from the moment of manufacture to the moment of injection. These uh, vaccines need to be kept super cold at minus 70 degrees. And such refrigerators don't exist everywhere. It's not just that. Every truck that transports them, every place that's warehouse that stores them, all of those need specialized equipment. We've invented the vaccine, but we need to manufacture it. We need to distribute it. We need to then... um, administer it. We need to persuade at least 50% of Americans, and frankly, the more the better, to take the vaccine and get those shots into people's bodies. All of that's going to take time. I think that'll take at least another year before we get to a minimum of 50% or maybe a bit more Americans that have been inoculated. And meanwhile, the virus is still spreading. So maybe we'll hit that dead, that landmark a bit earlier, but till the end of 2021, we're still going to unfortunately have to live the way we're living, you know, wearing masks with intermittent business and school closures and so on. And this is all before the, the potential widespread um, contagion of the new variants. So unfortunately, you know, this is a serious uh, situation we're in. All right, let me ask you two questions about that. One is, um, I mean... You've kind of talked about, as you said, the seriousness of this. Let me present you with potentially a more optimistic scenario. If 15 percent or slightly more of the U.S. has gotten this, and those tend to be, I would guess, more working age adults, people who like couldn't stop, you know, driving buses or stocking shelves or, you know, the things that they do that that we keep on doing. Um, And the people who get vaccinated first are the people most at risk, which are to say people over 80, over 70, over 60. Is that helpful that some of the most at risk people will be taken out of the pool by vaccination? And yes, the virus may continue to spread, but among people for whom there's less risk of death or hospitalization. There are two components to your question. The first component is in our effort to reach this, the phenomenon known as herd immunity, and just as a sidebar, herd immunity is the idea that a population of people can be immune to an epidemic, even if not every individual within them is immune. Now, for example, if you vaccinate 96% of the population against measles, and one of the 4% unvaccinated people gets measles, you don't get an epidemic of measles because that person doesn't have anyone to spread it to. That mm-hmm. 96% is the herd immunity threshold. Now, measles is the most infectious disease known. So that's why the threshold is very high for measles. You should have the intuition that the more infectious the disease is, the more the herd, higher the herd immunity threshold is. And with the disease SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, the so-called r not, the basic reproduction number, the intrinsic communicability of the disease is much lower than measles, but still high. So after a number of calculations and making certain adjustments, let's say at least 50% of people need to be acquire immunity in order to reach herd immunity for, for SARS, for SARS-CoV-2. But they can acquire it either naturally because they got an infection and got immune or artificially because they got vaccinated. So you're right, those things accumulate. Uh, you know, we're, we're having like two parallel things happening. Some people are getting immunity because they recover from infections. Others are being vaccinated. That's adding up and we're building immunity. However, reaching the third immunity threshold only means that we've taken the epidemiological wind out of the virus's sails. It, it doesn't mean that we've eradicated the virus. The virus is still there. It's still going to infect non-immune people. It's still going to kill some of them. It just means that it's that's epidemic force is no has been removed, just like measles. Measles is is not gone. It still occur occasionally causes some illnesses. So that's the first point. And second point is that 
that the more we vaccinate, actually, the better. And this is why Tony Fauci, some of his statements lately have, I think, been the way he's been speaking about this. He's been conflating. I mean, he obviously knows the difference, but but he's been saying, Americans, we need to get 80 percent, 90 percent, 70 percent, very high levels of vaccination. But what he's speaking about is that we need to get to that level before we can really um, have a much more normal kind of experience that level is even higher, let's say, than the minimum herd immunity threshold that we, you, you and I are just discussing right now. Hmm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm talking with Nicholas Christakis. He directs the Human Nature Lab at Yale, and he's the author, most recently, of Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. We're going to come back and continue this discussion in just a minute. And on our website, if you want to get more info about that question that we were discussing earlier of just how many Americans have had coronavirus over the past year, we've got more on the Columbia study that I mentioned, which puts the number at something like 100 million Americans. The CDC, however, thinks it's just over 80 million Americans. And there are more estimates, too. That's all at innovationhub.org. From PRX and GBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking this hour with Nicholas Christakis. He's a physician and he's a professor in a whole lot of departments at Yale University, sociology, medicine, biomedical engineering, statistics and data science, and ecology and evolutionary biology, which all makes him a great person to talk about the medical implications of a pandemic, as well as how it's going to change our interactions, our society, uh, maybe even how we see ourselves. He's the author, most recently, of Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. And what I want to do, um, Nicholas, is sort of uh, stick with some of the medical issues here that we had talked a little bit about um, before we get into culture. And um, you look at pandemics throughout history, kind of how they hit different people differently, different ages, different genders. I wonder what you see here in terms of uh, similarities with the past, differences? Well, one of the most unusual, well, it's it's not unusual for certain pathogens, but it is unusual. One of the most unusual features of this pathogen is that it tends to spare the young. So if you look at, uh, for example, classic influenza, if you look at mortality on the y-axis and age on the x-axis, you get what's called a U-shaped curve. So the disease kills the very young and the very old and spares working age people. This coronavirus has a backward L-shaped curve. So it, 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 it spares all the young until you get to your 50s when it begins to inflect. And then uh, by the time you're 80 or so, one out of five people who get this disease and get symptoms of it will die. So if you're like under 20 or 25, one out of three to one out of 10,000 people who get the disease will die. If you're like in your late 50s, early 60s, it's like one out of 100 who get the disease, who get symptoms will die and so on. Now, just to frame this a bit, that's these are that's a bad disease. I mean, on the one hand, we're, we should be really happy and lucky that it's not much worse. I mean, there's no God-given reason this disease isn't killing 10 or 20 or 30 percent of us, like in the movie Contagion, for example. Or like, And there are pandemics, right, that have been like that. Well, not pan, not recent pandemics. No. I mean, you, we had right, bubonic plague. History, yes. yes. Absolutely. And, and uh, 
you know, bubonic plague or, or smallpox outbreaks during the settling of the, of the New World, you know, when the Europeans came here, Native American populations were decimated. 90% of people would die. I mean, just, just astonishing levels of mortality. The, during the bubonic plague, people thought the world was ending. They were being annihilated. I mean, they're just, just awful. Or, or cholera outbreaks in the Philippines or in India, for example, or in Bangladesh. You can have very high levels of mortality. So, so on the one hand, 1% on average, this disease kills 1% of the people, 1.2% of the people approximately who get it, who get symptoms from it will die. There's a range, but that's about right. You know, that's pretty bad, actually, as an infectious disease. Now, it's not as bad as it could have been. So on the one hand, we should be really, we, you know, therefore, but for the grace of God, go we. I mean, we could have been facing a kind of bubonic plague type situation in the 21st century United States. Thankfully, we're not, okay? On the other hand, it's not a trivial disease. So just to benchmark listeners, if you're hospitalized with this condition at any given age, you're more likely to die than if you were hospitalized with a heart attack. So if you're worried about gee, if I'm 50 and I have a heart attack and I'm hospitalized, you know, gee, that's worrisome. This disease is more worrisome than that. Same if you're 60 or 70 or whatever. First point. Second point, even though as a parent, I'm really relieved and happy that if my children who range in age from 10 to 28 uh, were to get infected, they would be very unlikely to die. That's a huge relief to me as a parent. And we're very lucky as a society that this disease tends to spare the young. That's true. But on the other hand, Young people are unlikely to die of anything. So if you're 20 years old and you're thinking, oh, I shouldn't worry about getting this disease, that you're not thinking clearly because if you get the disease, your risk of death has gone up by, let's say, 30%. You have a 30% higher chance of dying than before you got the disease. So it's really, you know, because you're unlikely to die of anything if you're 20 years old in the next year. So, 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 so the, the, the mortality, the, one of the f- interesting features of this pathogen is that its mortality curve is as we discuss. So it dif- differentially affects people by age. Men are more likely to die than women. It, men are much greater risk than women, about 50 to, to 80% higher risk, depends on which population and a variety of details. Wow, that's a lot higher. Yes, and of course, minority groups are at higher risk for a whole host of reasons, including the differential kinds of occupations that minority groups have, the uh, socioeconomic differences, uh, the differences in chronic disease burden, for instance. So, so this pathogen, you know, like most pathogens, preferentially affects more vulnerable members of our society, the, the elderly, the sick, the socially marginalized, the poor, the imprisoned, for example, uh, the homeless. So this is typical of infectious diseases, and this pathogen, you know, has those features as well, unfortunately. You know, I remember talking quite early on in the pandemic to the epidemiologist, uh, Michael Osterholm, and I remember him talking about this idea of threading the needle that that it was important to stop people from getting infected, but the danger in society breaking apart was one to be considered as well. Yes. Right? That, has, that has domino effects of its own. Um, what have you seen over the past year? Where do you think we stand? Have we threaded that needle? Well, I think this is very important. So there's been a large conversation that's taken place in our society where people think, well, let me rephrase that. Public health is always a cold utilitarian calculus, right? You, you're trying to save lives at the collective level. It's not clinical medicine where you have a patient in front of you and you're trying to save their lives. It's public health, right? So you're trying to minimize death. And it is absolutely appropriate to ask the question, is our response making things worse? Like, so for example, it's legitimate to say if we shut down businesses and we impoverish people, 
will we have more deaths due to poverty or due to social isolation and, and depression and suicide than we would have saved because we prevented infections? So it is right. absolutely legitimate to ask that question and to do those calculations. But in my view, once we do the calculations, then we should proceed. So I've been very persuaded by the loss of life had we done nothing would have been much greater and that we needed to do with the things that we did. We needed to flatten the curve. We still incidentally need to do things to keep the curve flat. There are many hospital systems in our country right now that are overwhelmed. You know, we're seeing unbelievable scenes. People may not be aware of this, you know, where there, there are not enough uh, trucks, frozen trucks to, to keep the bodies in Los Angeles last week. You know, this is unbelievable that hospitals are overrun, et cetera. We are losing thousands of people every day are dying from this condition. And so it's easy for us to forget this. We're, and, and the epidemic is not abating. So it's a serious thing and we need, it needs a serious response. My concern with the American response in the last year, quite apart from what I, I think rightly can be seen as incompetent leadership at the level of the White House and, and many governorships, and some of those governorships were Democrats, not just Republicans, just to be clear. So it's not a political thing. It's just like, you know, our leaders did not do what we needed them to do. Now, part of that is also the fault of the citizenry. During times of plague, there's always lies and denial. You can go back thousands of years. If you think of plague as one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, mendacity is its squire, you know, following right behind it. So the germ is spreading through social networks from person to person. Right behind it, lies and misinformation are spreading. We've had an epidemic of lying in our society and an epidemic of denial. And this is always seen during times of plague because people don't want to believe the bad thing that is happening. But the jobs of lead, one of the jobs of a leader is to inform the people, look, this is awful what's happened. It's nobody's fault, but this is this is what is happening. This is what's going to happen. This is what we know based on decades of research in public health and centuries of experience with plagues. This is what's coming down the pike. And unfortunately, we are going to be facing a very difficult situation, the leader would say ideally to us, and the citizenry would listen. Because plagues, in fact, are a time of grief, right? They, they, plagues take our lives. They, they take away our livelihoods. They, they take away our way of life right? This, this is what plagues do. So what I would have wanted and ideally would have seen, and I think we are beginning to see finally, is a, a call to the American people to action and to collective purpose and to joint sacrifice and to maturity, right? We need to be mature. We cannot be like children putting our heads in the sand and pretending that nothing bad is happening. This is childlike. We, we have to accept that this very unpleasant thing has happened. Again, it's nobody's fault, it, it's an ancient threat. We're not the first group of people to confront this threat. It's here upon us. So what are we going to do in order to cope with it and to see the best, you know, to do as well as we can given this threat? And and I don't think the American people were leveled with. I think we were uh, uh, lied to. Uh, I think we want, many people wanted to be lied to. And so naturally their leaders lied to them. Uh, and I don't think we we were, you know, called to collective action to work together to confront this threat. And incidentally, and then I'll shut up, incidentally, I, I still think that's what we need to do. We need to still work together. We need to behave for six months or so till we can get as many people as possible vaccinated. And then we still need to behave, but we'll begin, things will begin to get better. And, but they'll get better in a certain way. I also, it's very important, I think, for people to realize that the vaccine, while it's enormously helpful, it's it's we're not I would say we're not at the 
beginning of the end of this pandemic. We're sort of at the end of the beginning of the pandemic because let's say it takes, as I said, another year before we reach this milestone of herd immunity, which is I think approximately right through the end of 2021. And finally, we put the biological and epidemiological impact of the pandemic behind us. We're still going to have to recover psychologically, socially, economically, clinically, which I'll come back to in a moment. You know, we have tens of millions of Americans out of work. Millions of businesses have closed. Millions of children have missed school. Uh, For every person that dies, and between half a million and a million Americans will die, it's unclear exactly, but perhaps five times as many will be disabled. And I'm not talking now about short or long COVID, which is how long you're ill when you're initially sick. I'm talking after you recover, is your body damaged? Do you have some pulmonary fibrosis or cardiac or renal or neurological deficits? We think maybe five times as many people as die will have such problems. So that's two and a half million Americans are going to have some kind of disability. It'll take money and effort to care for those people. So it'll take time to mop up. So I think that intermediate period will last a year or two, uh, two years maybe, through the end of 2023. And then, then we'll enter the post-pandemic period. And then I think, judging from past pandemics, it's going to be a bit of a party. I think it's going to be like the roaring 20s of the 21st century, similar to the roaring 20s of the 20th century after the 1918 pandemic. So I can just imagine people listening and they're like, wow, I've been in my house for almost a year or my kid's been out of school for almost a year. You're telling me six more months. Well, that that I mean, for, you know, if you're thinking about school, that takes us to the end of the school year. Um, Right. Uh, Well, just look what's happening in England right now. I mean, with the new strain, yeah. there or right. all, what makes us think? This is the other thing that's astonishing to me. People somehow repeatedly, you know, Wuhan collapses. The Chinese build build uh, uh, hospitals that have a thousand ICU beds in ten days. They build such a hospital, and we're looking at this in in, in uh, February and, and saying, "Oh, well, isn't it interesting what the Chinese are doing?" Then Lombardy in northern Italy collapses, and Americans are like, "Well." It was China, Italy, it's not us. And then New York collapses and then Houston and then L.A. So what makes us think that what's happening in Europe right now isn't going to affect us? This new strain is spreading. They're closing their schools through Europe. There are all kinds of other headaches that are happening there. We're going to face similar challenges in the United States. So I don't think I don't think that we are going to have a rapid return to normal. And I do think we have to work as a nation to manufacture and distribute and take as many doses of vaccines as possible. And our current rate, it's going to take years to vaccinate everybody. So we need to really up our game. And second, I think we as a society need to sort of be a bit more mature and patient. And I realize the sacrifices that are are being required of everyone in different ways to see the other side of it. So yes, it's going to take time, I think. What do you think, I want to ask both sides of this question, but um, what do you think maybe the greatest gains will be from the pandemic, like ways in which society will change that will be positive, things that might never have happened had this disruptive event not come along? Well, um, there will be changes. So as I said, beginning in 2024, and it's not a hard, it's not like a specified date, but, you know, roughly around then we're going to enter this post-pandemic period. I think during times of plague, for thousands of years, people have behaved in certain ways. First of all, they get more religious, and Americans are getting more religious right now. Religiosity is rising during times of plague. You know, there are no atheists in foxholes. Um, People stop spending their money, uh, either because there's nothing to spend money on or because they're unemployed or because they're stuck at home. This is happening in the United States right now. Uh, 
uh, people get more abstemious, they get more risk averse. Uh, uh, they, of course, they're, they have no limited social interactions. All that's very typical. But, but when we get to 2024, approximately, all of that will unravel, I think. It'll go in the opposite direction. People will become less religious. They'll relentlessly seek out social opportunities in nightclubs and bars and restaurants and sporting events and musical concerts and political rallies. We might see some sexual licentiousness as well. I mean, people have been cooped up for a long time uh, looking for opportunities of different sorts. Uh, people start spending their money. Uh, we'll see some risk-taking. We'll see joie de vivre, I think. Um, and typically what you see is you often see an efflorescence of the arts or a, or of entrepreneurship. And, and in fact, what I think the epidemic has done in ways that many listeners can understand is that it's accelerated certain changes in our society. Uh, everything from, you know, using, you know, teleconferencing like we are, we're all Zooming all right. the time, to exactly. changes in, in the hospitality industry, to changes in working from home, reshaping uh, where people choose to live and how they judge. Another thing that happens during times of plague is that there's often a kind of search for meaning. Now, I mentioned the religiosity because, you know, when people are at home and they're thinking about death, uh, it's quite understandable that people think more about meaning. And, um, and this also happens, for example, in healthcare workers. Let's not forget, thousands of healthcare workers have died caring for us. This has happened for thousands of years. Thucydides talks about how the doctors in the plague of Athens in 430 BC says all the doctors are dying. You know, there's nothing new under the sun, it turns out, with plague. And healthcare workers have died in our country. Another reason, by the way, we should behave well, because we shouldn't impose risks, needless risks on these individuals. But the healthcare workers that are caring for people right now, they, many of them, are thinking about the meaning of their occupation and deriving some kind of sense of meaning. I remember as a young doctor myself in the 1990s when I was taking care of people with HIV, you, I was a hospice doctor for many years. You, you can't be in intimate contact with death, especially from sudden infectious disease, and not be reflecting on the purpose of your occupation. But, but the general public is also thinking about meaning, okay? So for example, during the, the, after the murder of George Floyd in the summer, uh, of course, there's a long history of, of, of racialized policing in our society, which is deplorable. Uh, but, uh, it, but it wasn't just a brutal video capture of George Floyd's murder, I think, that contributed to the protest. And it wasn't just the fact that people were unemployed or otherwise idle or that they had been stuck at home. I think there was a kind of heightened sense of meaning and, uh, and so people took to the streets, right? They were thinking, well, what's important to me in our society? And incidentally, I also think, and so, and so the, the protests were framed in terms of justice, okay? And uh, even though some of them were very violent and uh, there was some rioting, for example, at the courthouse in Portland and so on. And I think in another way, even the insurrection we saw on January 6th at the Capitol, which was, of course, on the right wing end of the political spectrum, uh, also reflected a kind of search for meaning. Those people... I mean, their behavior was inexcusable, but they framed it as patriotism, right? Like what they were, mm -hmm. they were looking for meaning, okay? So I think that, that there are ways in which there will be a variety of changes that endure in our society. Now, I need to emphasize that over the great sweep of history, we've had plagues before, we'll see the other side of this. I don't think human nature is changing as a result of the right. plague. Right. But I do think you'd send some changes. For example, in the bubonic plague in, uh, in the 14th century, the manifest inability of doctors and priests and rulers to stop the plague 
led to a crisis in confidence in elites and in expertise. Some people argue that it contributed to the Reformation, it contributed to the uh, decline of aristocratic rule, that it contributed to a, a resurrection in the sciences or a kind of redirection of the sciences. So, so the, you know, the, the, the plague prompted radical changes in, in society in the, during the medieval period. And I, I think there's truth to that argument as well. And we may see things like that in our society too. Of course, just one more thing. To be yeah, clear, right. this plague is nowhere near as deadly as bubonic plague, okay? So it's very important not to overplay yeah. the analogies, okay? I mean, you know. Right, right, right. So let's slip in our last break here. Uh, then I want to get to the other side of that question uh, that I asked about how we're going to change and, and look at this, the sort of how we might change for the worse side of it. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. We're going to be right back for our last few minutes with Nicholas Christakis. He's the author of Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. He also directs the Human Nature Lab at Yale. If you want to find or share this entire conversation, you can get it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, where you can also grab our conversations every week. We're coming to you from GBH and PRX. Back in a minute. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. We've been looking at what both the short-term and the long-term effects of the pandemic are going to be. I'm joined by Nicholas Christakis. He's a physician and sociologist at Yale, who's the author of Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. And um, I want to pick up kind of right where we left off. We had talked about some of the ways, some of the positive ways in which the pandemic might change society. And uh, after the flu pandemic of 1918, you had the rise of things like the Harlem Renaissance and obviously like the Roaring Twenties. People were seeking out not just the arts, but social interaction What's the other side? Like what negative comes out of this? And I know also we've talked about lives lost, which talk, gets talked about a lot here. But we have not discussed as much um, people whose lives are adversely affected or um, quality of life lost. Well, you know, you can benchmark this this plague, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic against certain other things. So, for example, if you just count deaths because this disease tends to afflict the elderly, um, you know, this disease can be seen to, you know, be half as bad as the Spanish flu, for example, just counting deaths um, or about as bad as the opioid epidemic uh, that has been raging for the last 20 years. Um, so... So if you just count deaths, but because those other conditions like HIV and the opioid epidemic tend to afflict the young, if you count years of life lost, actually um, COVID-19 won't be anywhere near as deadly as the 30 years of HIV that we've had or anywhere near as deadly. It'll be about a fourth as deadly as the opioid pandemic when quantified as years of life lost. But I should say another thing, which again, I discuss in, in, in the book, in Apollo Zero, there are other subtle things that can happen that we're not necessarily focused on. Let me give you an example. So, so I'm going to speak a bit for a moment in stereotypes, but, but just imagine the stereotypic heterosexual couple in our society right now. Um, of course, they're homosexual couples, they're single family head of households, but let's just imagine the, the modal household, which is in fact a heterosexual couple. And let's furthermore imagine 
uh, again, what is typical is that men on average make more money than women for a host of reasons, including different occupations, different age, and you know, men are older than women in the average couple and so on. So you have the average, let's say, heterosexual couple with the average, let's say, typical income difference between the two of them. And they're sitting around their kitchen table. They have a couple of young kids and they're trying to make a decision what to do for their own family that makes sense for them. Okay, And they make uh, and the kids are home from school. Work is hard to find. So they make from their perspective what is a seemingly quite rational decision, which is that the man is going to still work outside the home. And the woman is going to quit her job or she's lost her job, let's say. She's going to stay home with the kids who are now out of school, let's say. Sure. And that's their right to make that decision. Well, they're not the only couple that's making that decision. Let's say millions of other couples are making this decision. We may- I should say millions of couples, I think, like the statistics show, are making that decision when you look at women leaving the workforce. Because, I mean, I- I- I've felt this before, but like if you have a five-year-old and a seven-year-old, what are you going to do? Like. Yes. See, see you at the end of the day. That's not going to work, yes. right? You do Zoom school. I'll see you when I get home from work. Yes, exactly. And furthermore, imagine you add to that, let, let's say that the man is making 50% more than the woman in this little stereotypic scenario. The couple is going to make a rational decision about what to do in this type of situation. But anyway, of course, that they're adults. They can do what they think is best for their own families. That's their business and so on. Now, imagine that millions of couples are, as we said, making the same decision. We may find after the pandemic that we have lost 10 or 20 or 30 years of gains in women's labor market participation as a result of this. We may find that the occupations women are in, the wages that women are experiencing, the relative balance in the, between the sexes in, in, in earnings has been, you know, devastated or devastated is too strong a word, but significantly modified because of this pathogen, you see. So here is a widespread, potentially long-lasting socioeconomic effect, spillover effect of the epidemic. Um, so there could be a whole host of things like this that persist um, you know, after 2024 in the post-pandemic period. Uh, will we be prepared for the next pandemic? Or is it just like part of humans that it, we, we aren't prepared? We just can never be prepared for our lives to be turned upside down like this. Well, part of the, part of the problem is that, is that pandemics come every 10 or 20 years. If you look at the last 300 years, we've had respiratory pandemics every 10 or 20 years. There was one in 2009, the H1N1 pandemic. People, most people don't remember it because it, the reason it was the germ wasn't very deadly, right? You just got the cold. So there was this respiratory pandemic. It came in waves for a number of years, but nobody remembers it because it just gave you the sniffles. So respiratory pandemics come every 10 or 20 years, but we get devastating ones like this every 50 or 100 years. Now, this is not clockwork, right? This is stochastic. It just approximately every 50 or 100 years. So we could get another one of these in 10 or 20 years, not in another 50 or 100 years. And in fact, this is precisely the reason that, that we have actually had this pandemic we're experiencing right now is actually not as bad as many people had feared, believe it or not. Many experts have been warning for decades that this is a national security threat to the United States. And it is. We're seeing that right now. How awful, you know, our economy, Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary and, and David Cutler, an economist at Harvard, a former colleague of mine, they published a paper over the summer calling this the $16 trillion virus. These are vast sums of money. $8 trillion hit to our economy because of the virus and a further $8 trillion in lives lost in, in illness and disability and so on. So that this is a devastating impact of this virus. So people have been worried for quite some time. There were plans for how to cope better in place 
we did not execute those plans. And partly it was a failure of political will, partly it was a failure of the public imagination, as we discussed earlier, and maturity. So it is something in the nature of threats that occur more than three generations in the past that we tend to, you know, forget them and minimize them. Mm -hmm. We're also mm -hmm. surprised. You know, it's like devastating tsunamis. You know, in the, there, this is one of the reasons we have, by the way, mythology and, and lore and legends is to encapsulate wisdom about what to do. And we have modern technologies like books and the Internet and CDC websites that try to communicate across time to future generations. You know, here's how bad this is. And um, and here's what you need to do, you know, when it strikes. And we, we didn't we didn't do what we needed to do, unfortunately. Finally, I feel like for nearly a year, we've been having the conversation of what approach to dealing with the pandemic is the best. I, I know China, obviously, is a very different government than a lot than the than yes. the U.S. government. So the way they dealt with it was completely different from the way we, we would even be able to deal with it. Um, Japan had its way and and Sweden had its way and, and Germany had its way. And it was like a gajillion little laboratories out there. What did you learn from that? Whose approach did you like? Who did it right? Well, I would say... Or best. Well, I would say that this is maybe too long an answer to your question, which is that it, it doesn't... You, there is no one way. There are... You know, we have... Uh, the, the way to think about this is... The way I think about this is there's something famous thing called the Swiss cheese model. The Swiss cheese model imagines that there are different layers of defense each of which is imperfect. It's like a piece of Swiss cheese that has some holes in it through which the virus can penetrate. So masking is one layer and testing is another mm -hmm. layer and school closure is another layer and border closure is another layer and quarantining is another layer and testing is another layer and so on and so forth. Each layer can work, but each is imperfect. But you should have the intuition that if you stack up three or four pieces of Swiss cheese, the holes won't overlap since they're randomly distributed in the layer. And by the time you get to the third or fourth slice, you can't see through the stack anymore. There are no overlapping holes and uh, you can stop the virus. And so what matters is not so much what specific layers each any given country that you mentioned implements. It's what matters is that we implement more than one layer. And, um, and I think, you know, in the United States, we haven't implemented enough defenses. And I should say that even vaccination is a very good piece of Swiss cheese. It's 95% effective, but not 100%. There's still a few little holes. Right. There will be people, I guess, who get vaccinated and then get coronavirus. Correct. And in fact, this is one of the reasons that I think we're going to be wearing masks for a while. People are not going to throw off their masks all of a sudden in a few months if, if people think they are. But I think the longest lesson that I would take from this, and I mean, you, you, you were sort of highlighting differences. I'd like to just highlight the similarities in the human experience, whether it's across countries or across time. And, and I'd just like to quote from Albert Camus' uh, 1947 book, The Plague. In the book, there's a protagonist, a, a Dr. Ryu, who's, uh, who's alive during a time of a bubonic plague attack in Europe. And, um, and this is a Camus writing. He goes, Dr. Ryu resolved to compile this chronicle so that some memorial of the injustice and outrage done them might endure and to state quite simply what we learn in time of pestilence, that there are more things to admire in men than to despise. And this is exactly how I feel, uh, that actually despite a lot of the stuff we've been talking about, about some of the negative effects and some of our negative responses, it is actually also the case that we humans are amazing. 
and we are capable of tremendous acts of sacrifice, of cooperation, of sharing of knowledge, of rallying together. And if you look across the gamut, you look at healthcare workers who paid enormous prices, you look at scientists who've invented the vaccine, you've looked at school children who have tolerated being away from their friends and having their schools closed, you look at people who have lost their jobs and yet soldiered on, you, you look at all of these sacrifices and efforts that people have made and, and you marvel at it. And, and that is also true about how we respond in times of plague. Nicholas Christakis is the author of Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. He's also a professor of social and natural science at Yale. Nicholas, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Kara. website, we're going to have more about that issue we were discussing of women in the workforce and how they're being adversely affected by the pandemic. A few months ago, I talked to Obama administration economist Betsy Stevenson about what the first few months of the pandemic had wrought. And it wasn't pretty. We saw a much steeper decline in female employment and female labor force participation in the last few months. And if that stays down, that's going to have repercussions that last, really, I think, the rest of those women's lives. But that, turns out, was just the beginning. Since then, millions more women have left the workforce, often to look after their children. If you want to hear my whole interview with Betsy Stevenson about what's at stake for women and how caregiving is reordering their lives right now, we've got that for you at innovationhub.org. You can let us know what you thought of this conversation. We're on Twitter at iHubRadio. You can also email us, innovationhub at wgbh.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Solinger, and associate producer Sarah Leeson. We also had production help from Hannah Kiros. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Innovation Hub.